0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Well this morning we're concluding our look at uh, Jesus as high priest in Hebrews chapters seven through nine. We're going to be looking at the last two paragraphs in Hebrews chapter 9, but I'd like to begin with memory. I'd like to start by getting you to remember something that happened to you earlier in life, something that happened in childhood. You would have been 10 or 11 years old, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but the moment that I'm talking about that I want you to to keep in your mind is the moment that, that you were home alone, or maybe with siblings But the point is, your parents weren't there. You found yourself in the place where their presence was usually dominant, and they weren't there. They were off somewhere else. Maybe they'd gone out for the evening. Maybe they were at work. But you were home alone, either by yourself or with brothers and sisters. And and the, the feeling of that moment when it happens for the first time is kind of interesting. If you can cast back in your memory and remember the way you felt the first time that happened to you when you found yourself uh, in the house and your parents were gone, they weren't there. It's kind of exhilarating to realize that this place that's usually governed suddenly has no government, right? There's suddenly this, this freedom that exists when you realize anything could happen. Like anything could happen in the house right now. I could do anything. And even if you don't try to get away with anything, just the, the thought that you could, there's a certain emotion that goes along with that possibility. But there's a certain uh sense of of being unshackled, unfettered. It can be uh exciting, it can even be a little scary, because what are you gonna do? Like what are you gonna do now that your parents aren't there? To restrain you, to give you rules and, and to, to him you in, it 's fun, it's exciting. Maybe when this happened to you for the first time, it was something you had actually dreamed of and anticipated, something you had wished for many times in the past, that you could just be on your own, that you could make your own decisions, that you didn't have people always there telling you what you had to do and when you had to do it. So it was exciting. Now, think about that memory and and that feeling and then ask yourself how the feeling changes when they stay away too long. It's all good and well for mom and dad to be gone out of the house for an hour or two in the afternoon. But if they don't come back when you expect them, if their absence is a little too extended, things change and the way it feels changes. Right, that absence of order that was so exhilarating when you first realized it suddenly feels a little threatening, especially if you've been left alone with siblings. That was my experience. When I think back to, to my parents' decision to leave town, to, to build a house on the outskirts of town in the middle of nowhere, where we lived on a street where there were literally no other houses that were occupied, and it was just my, my mom and my dad, myself and my little brother, just the four of us, and both my parents worked during the day. So there were these times when my brother and I would find ourselves alone with no adult supervision anywhere nearby, and anything could happen. And if I had been able to, to enjoy those times alone, a lot of good reading would have occurred during those hours. But I had a little brother. And so, the longer my parents were gone, the less stable the situation became. And, and even though I longed for freedom, I found myself, when they were gone too long, wishing that they would return, wishing that they would come back. There were some needs that I had from them that I didn't appreciate until that absence it made them feel more necessary. Do you remember when that happened to you, when you you kind of remembered that being free from their influence might not be all it's cracked up to be? You might need them to come back sometime. You might want the things that that you hadn't wanted before. And what is it that you want from them? For me, and, and maybe you can relate to this, especially if you did have brothers and sisters, for me, one of the things I longed for, when I longed for my parents to return, I longed for order to be reestablished, especially for justice to be done. Because transgressions had been committed by my brother. And he needed to be punished. And and I threatened him, I would tell him, you know, when they get home, I'm going to reveal everything and, and there's going to be a reckoning. He didn't care. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe that I would turn him in, but I would, definitely. I longed for the, for the restoration of justice that their presence represented. And also, um, maybe you're not like this, but I also long to be fed. Theoretically, we could have fended for ourselves. Responsible young people uh, could cook, or at least in, in our day, microwave things, and uh, heat them up. But we weren't that sort of young person. We were like the worst kind of kids to become latchkey kids, because we could not fend for ourselves. And so if my mom was at work, I would start calling her like probably two, three hours before she was supposed to be home and just letting her know what the situation was. You know, how starvation, what level of starvation we were at. And I would call her and and let her know, my brother, he's dead already. And I probably will be dead within five minutes unless you get here quickly with food. You need to feed us. In, In fact, we should have a feast to compensate for your long absence. So if they had to work late, all bets were off. There's no telling the kind of famine that, that would set loose in the house. And, again, probably you were much more responsible as a young person than I was, but, but I didn't really care about the reasons for the absence. I didn't care that the reason that they weren't there is they had to work, because like, the bank wanted us to keep paying them money so we could live in the house that I now found myself unsupervised within, that didn't matter to me. This place where they were wasn't a real place to me. It was just like this arbitrary absence, an excuse that they gave to deprive me of the things that I wanted. And so I resented this, this place work that they happened to be at and, and, and didn't like it. I, I made up stories, right? I made up excuses for why they needed to leave that place and come here. I entreated, I implored, I called constantly and, and begged, You know, whatever you think you're doing there, you need to be here. This is where you need to be. You have no idea what's happening here. If you could see what I could see, you'd come and put a stop to it right now. If you could see the suffering, then you would return, and you wouldn't think that this place you're at matters. The reason that you have to go back to childhood to get in touch with those feelings is hopefully we've matured a little bit since then, and we understand the, the importance of those absences a little more than than we did. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we are all still just children. We are all still just children. And we long for things from God. We long for things. We long for justice to be done. We long for the restoration of order. For a while, maybe it seems exhilarating to think, God is not in the building. We could get away with anything. We could do anything we wanted. The desires of our heart could be satisfied. The problem is there are other people in the world with different hearts. And their desires are satisfied too. We see that and it turns us fearful and we long for that restoration, structure of order. We want justice to be done. We want to be fed. Right? We want to be fed. We do without. We suffer. Like, there is famine, real and, and metaphorical. And we pray to God, just like kids calling mom on the phone. We make up stories and we tell him how bad things are. If you just knew how bad things were, you would be here. I don't know this place that you're at, whatever it is you're doing, but trust me, if you knew what was going on, this is where you would be. And this arbitrary absence, this insistence of yours on being elsewhere makes no sense. Because this is where you're wanted. This is the place that you're needed. If you can remember what it was like to be a child in the absence of your parents, then you can get in touch with what it's like to be you right now when it comes to your relationship with God. And all the longings we have and the emotions and the needs that we have towards Him and the way that we address Him and think about Him, all of it is there. All of it is there. Our frustration our fears, our longings, all bound up in that that sense of our own powerlessness and our need for Him to come and fix things and to change things. And in our text, in Hebrews 9, we begin to understand a little bit about where He is and why He had to go. We get a little bit of a justification for for the sense of absence that we have. Our sense of... That Jesus isn't where he should be. That Jesus isn't doing what he needs to be doing. Because he's elsewhere. Why? Let's take a look at the book of Hebrews. As I said, we've got two paragraphs here. We're going to take them in uh, turn. We're going to look at the first paragraph. This is Hebrews chapter 9. It begins in verse 15 and goes through verse 22. So hear the word of the Lord. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Pause there. I want you to consider this. When you think about why Jesus had to die, what was the necessity behind the death of Christ? Why did he have to do this? I want you to understand that Jesus' death is a sacrifice but it is a sacrifice that inaugurates the new covenant. Jesus' death is the sacrifice that inaugurates the new covenant. Do you see in that first sentence that we just read, the idea of Jesus' death and the way that we've been speaking about it, the way that we've been talking about the death of Jesus is as an atoning sacrifice linked to the, the day of atonement in the Old Testament, the day when the high priest entered the holiest of holies he offered up a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. Right? That is the way, that's like the model that we've used to think about the significance of the death of Jesus. But now we're given another way to look at it. That's all true. Like Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice. He has to die in order to make atonement for our sins. But, Jesus' death is another kind of sacrifice as well. There's another kind of sacrifice that you see in the Old Testament, that Jesus' death, it doesn't just echo, but it suggests that, that all those kinds of sacrifices were also just shadows, just copies of the sacrifice of Christ that was to come later. And the kind of sacrifice that is, is the sacrifice that inaugurates a covenant. The sacrifice that inaugurates a covenant. So keep those two things distinct in your mind. Because we've been working with atoning sacrifice, but but I want to shift gears and look at this other kind of sacrifice that was common in the Old Testament. So the atoning sacrifice is the one that takes place in the tabernacle or in the temple. This is the sacrifice that is done by the high priest when he enters into that holiest of holy places. Right? That's the one that covers sin. But there's another kind of sacrifice that you see taking place in the Old Testament. Another Uh, context in which animals are slain, their blood is used to some consecrated purpose, and it has to do with the establishment of covenants. The establishments of sometimes, the word for covenant here is translated as will, which makes it a little more familiar to us. We we still, we don't so much work in in a world of covenants any longer. We don't enter into covenants with people, but a will is something that, that you can still understand, at least something you can still uh, get excited about. The thought that maybe you don't know it, but you are an heir or an heiress. Right? You might be named in some rich person's will. There may be an inheritance that is coming your way that's going to solve all of your problems. And all that is necessary for that will to go into effect is the death of the person. Right? All that has to happen is for them to die. That reality, that, that minutia of contract law, I guess, is also the motive for you know, 50% of all crime fiction. right? The realization that all our problems are solved if one person dies. It's a good reason to keep the contents of your will secret right, from family members. You just never know. Right? Because the death is necessary for the will to go into effect. So if you think about that, that relationship between that the legal instrument of the will and the death of the person whose will it is, that the death is necessary for the document to be enforced you can begin to understand this, this other kind of transaction, this other way that sacrifices work. When you talk in terms of covenant, covenants too are established with sacrifice. They, they are established with uh, not exactly the same kind of death as, as in the sort of wills that we're familiar with, So it's not like, I write my will, and then I die, and then Laurie inherits my vast estate. That kind of will is a little bit different from the covenants that we're talking about in our text. Because these covenants, they're established by a death, but it's not necessarily the death of the person who is entering into it. There there is a substitute death that stands in for this. So think about the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 15. This famous uh, agreement that is made, God condescends towards Abraham. He makes them these promises. He makes Abraham the promise, you're going to be the father of many nations. Genesis 15. And then, once they've made that agreement, how is it ratified? God doesn't come down with with scrolls or tablets. and Like, I've signed here, Abraham, you need to sign there, and then, then we'll send it to the attorneys and everything will be binding. In order to make it binding... Death must occur. But it's not the death of Abraham. It's the death of a substitute. Right? So there's a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice that's made. And in this instance, it's really interesting because Abraham offers up the animals. like He gathers the animals, but then he goes into a deep sleep. And the actual work of the sacrifice is performed by God himself, speaking of what the binding nature of this covenant that's being made with Abraham. That covenant, that promise made to Abraham was not made without the shedding of blood, is the point that's being made. If you look at that covenant, you see that a death had to occur for that agreement to go into effect. The significance of the death is interesting. Scholars, when they look at why covenants operated in this way, they say that the, the way that the sacrifice was perceived, this is especially, I think, visible in, in the covenant with Abraham, where the animals are divided up The idea is that the penalty for the violation of the covenant is enacted on the substitute. right? So the the penalty, the the death that's being enacted on the animals is the penalty to the humans for violating the covenant. That's what it symbolizes, what it signifies to those. So, So the animals meet this grisly end as a kind of warning or picture of what it would mean to break this covenant, the penalty if we uh, do not keep faith with one another after having made this agreement. That's the procedure that we see. This is the way covenants work. And so the author of Hebrews, just appealing to this legal precedent, is saying, this covenant is no different. You want to understand the necessity of the death of Jesus. You have to understand the atoning sacrifice that we've already talked about, but you also need to see this other significance of sacrifice and, and how it relates the covenant. So you see the procedure that is outlined uh, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And if you go back even further than that, there's this description of of the reason for the death in, in this covenant context. This is in that first sentence, the The last phrase, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's the penalty. The transgressions committed under the covenant, that's the penalty for breaking it. Transgressions were committed, faith was broken, and a penalty was incurred as a result. The death was necessary as a result. So, a death is necessary to atone for sin committed under the covenant, but death is also necessary to inaugurate a new covenant. That's the idea. So in the covenant of Abraham, we see the shedding of blood, but it's not the covenant with Abraham that the author mentions here. It's the one with Moses. So Genesis 15 is the covenant with Abraham. This covenant affirmation with Moses, this takes place in Exodus 24. This is something that takes place in the presence of all the people. So all the people of Israel are gathered. They have the the book of the covenant and it is read out to them. They hear it read out and they affirm the words that Moses speaks. Then Moses goes through what to us seems like this bizarre and, and unsanitary blood ritual. right? Where he's dipping the blood of the sacrifice. He's dipping his hyssop into the blood of the sacrifice. And he's throwing blood on everything. Right? The author of Hebrews describes this. You know, He says, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship because under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And so he's giving us this instance of the necessity of death, the necessity of blood being shed. This happened not just in Abraham's case. This happened in the case of Moses as well. The, the covenant that we associate with the law, when that was enacted, it was sealed with the shedding of blood. That blood, sprinkled over everything, had significance. Right? This is a covering of sacrificial blood over the people, over the, the book, over the altar, over the, the tent, over everything related to that covenant. Now for us, living when we do, after the end of such sacrifices, we look at these rituals and and they're incomprehensible to us. I I don't want to be there the day that the covenant ritual is enacted in the Old Testament. Like, I'm sick that day. I couldn't make it to the tabernacle, Moses, because I heard there was going to be something weird at church that day. And I thought, you know, (laughs) I'll sleep in. Right? It's just, it's strange to us like if if we were describing some ancient pagan ritual you know okay sure but this is god the god we worship and this is the way his promises are inaugurated there's got to be a better way got to be a better way we're squeamish let's say you don't see the point of it all we'll come back to that idea but first i want to ask you this question like what is the covenant that is being inaugurated if if the covenant of Moses, the covenant with Moses is inaugurated by the, the blood of calves and goats. If the covenant with Abraham is inaugurated in Genesis 15 with sacrificial animals as well, what is the death of Jesus inaugurated? Doesn't it need to be better? Like Throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been, been looking at the ways in which what Jesus does is better than everything that went before. Now think of it this way, if those covenants that went before, if the blood that sealed them, that inaugurated them, that made them real, was the blood of animals, no matter how pure those animals were, I mean, surely it could only do so much. How much more significant, how much better is a covenant that is inaugurated by the blood of Christ? How much more binding, how much more powerful must that covenant be? Now, the author of Hebrews in chapter 8 already quoted to us at length the text of this new covenant. It's in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. In Jeremiah 31, we're told about the new covenant that is to come, but, but that is a prediction. It's a prophecy. That new covenant isn't established when it is first announced. So when does it get established? Like When does it get the sacrifice that the old covenant God, at the cross. That's what we're being told, at the cross. At the cross, Jesus made atonement for our sins, but what he also did was make the sacrifice that put into force the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. So there's this negative side of the cross, um, negative in the sense that, that it, it's, it's bad that Jesus had to do this. It's unfortunate that Jesus had to die for sin. There's also a positive side that by that death, He makes active and powerful this new promise. This new covenant never to be superseded. This once and for all, best ever promise that God has made is inaugurated by the blood of Jesus. Because it is necessary for there to be a new sacrifice. The the covenant... The will is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. It comes into force when the one who makes it, the mediator of this new covenant, dies. The death of Christ inaugurates the new covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When you think about those words, they ought to suggest to you, as abhorrent to us, as strange to us, as this whole bloodletting uh, religious ritual is, the fact that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins should speak to us of the seriousness of sin to require such an atonement. It should be abhorrent to us. The, the things that are necessary to atone for sin should be abhorrent if the thing being atoned for is abhorrent. Also, we should see that by the shedding of blood, the promise of grace is empowered. So this is the necessity of the death of Christ. The necessity of the death of Christ. Why he had to go. Why he had to do what he did. Second thing is this. For sin to be forgiven, nothing less than the death of Jesus was necessary. For sin to be forgiven... Nothing less than the death of Jesus was necessary, and nothing more. Nothing less and nothing more. Thus it was necessary, we're told. Now we're looking at our next paragraph. It's Hebrews chapter 9, picking up in verse 23. We're going to read all the way through verse 26, which means we're going to leave the last couple of sentences Actually, the last long sentence until the end. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Pause there. Thus it was necessary. The atonement, the death of Christ was necessary. was a necessity behind it. And the necessity was greater than the necessity for everything that went before it. The the blood ritual, the the sacrifice of animals, the the shedding of that blood, the the sprinkling of that blood on everything that Moses did, it was good enough for what it was attempting, which was to purify these physical things, these copies. But in order for the real work of atonement to be done, something more was necessary. A better sacrifice had to take place. Better blood had to be shed because what could purify the copies did not have the power to purify the true things, the true heavenly places. Which is interesting. Have you ever thought about this? The author of Hebrews is saying to us that part of the reason why the death of Christ was necessary was to purify heavenly places. When we think of heavenly places, we don't think of them as being like, in need of purification. Right? Like heavenly places, that's, that's, that's all holy. That's all good. It, it's down here where the problem is. This is where the purification needs to happen. But here we're getting a glimpse of something else. When we think about the effects of sin, somehow it was necessary. Because of the effects of sin for not the copy but the real place to be purified by blood. It was necessary for a sacrifice better than all the sacrifices that he had gone on before to purify that heavenly place of worship. This stresses again the gravity of sin and the effects of sin and the scope of sin. The result of the fall is more far-reaching than we give it credit for. But we argue whether or not, because of sin, we are completely under this way of sin. Like, we want to believe there are aspects of ourselves that have not been, you know, tainted by sin. You know, sure, like, my flesh is bad, but my will is good. And you know, my heart is basically okay. The author of Hebrews is saying, not only is your heart not basically okay, but even the heavenly places are tainted by sin. Even that place needs purification. We, all too often, and and in our own self-interest perhaps, minimize the effects of sin on ourselves and on the world around us, on the whole world. So Jesus was a better sacrifice, and he was a better sacrifice made in a better temple. It was necessary for that sacrifice of Christ to be made not in the temple on earth, but in the heavenly place. So nothing less than the death of Jesus was necessary to do the work that needed to be done. But nothing more was necessary either. But his sacrifice was enough. No more needed to be done. Right? The emphasis here in talking about the sacrifice of Christ is the finality of it. Right? It's not necessary for this to be done over and over again. It's not necessary for Jesus to sacrifice himself again to cover the rest. It is all covered. It is all done. It is all accomplished by the death of Christ. Nothing else needs to be added to it. I mean, this is the reason why in, in uh, the Reformation, like it reformed authors, critics of the Roman Catholic Church. What they would criticize is the Mass. The Mass, and the reason they criticized the Mass was that what was being done there was seen as the sacrifice of Christ again. It was a sacrificial ritual in which Christ was offered up again for the sins of the people, which they saw as being in violation of this text. Christ is offered up once for all. He alone is the mediator. So He doesn't need to be sacrificed again. And we don't need any other mediators apart from Him. Nothing more is necessary apart from Christ. I think when we minimize the sacrificial nature of Christ's death. When we want to think about what Jesus came to do and we want to minimize the suffering and death, we want to make the cross a smaller part of that and emphasize some other aspect of Jesus. Like Jesus came into the world, not so much like because a death needed to occur and a sacrifice made, but Jesus came into the world to show us what goodness looks like. Jesus came into the world to give us a role model for loving. That's the purpose of Jesus. That's what the life of Jesus is all about, and this sacrificial stuff that's primitive that we should move beyond we shouldn't still be clinging to this idea that Jesus had to suffer and die because of like the wrath of God, which is all so very old testament. instead, we should see Jesus as, as just a, a an example of love, but when we do this and we do it for good reason, we do it because it clearly I mean this doesn't sound good to people. Like, all of this sacrificial language sounds weird. It sounds strange, primitive. It doesn't look good for God. It doesn't look good for God. When, when we try to teach our children, uh, you get angry with people, maybe for good reason. The thing to do is just forgive. And we want God to be that way, right? So if God really is God, then he should be like, more forgiving than we are. Be like, oh, I know you all sin, but you know what, don't worry about it. it it's all good. It's all good. Because that's what we would do. Right? If I had the power of God and you were all sinners, I'd like to think I'd give you a pass. Say, hey, nobody's perfect. But that's not the God revealed in Scripture. The God revealed in Scripture, there is a cosmic need for justice to be done. And, and the inconvenient truth is justice needs to be done toward us. Not just somebody else. It is necessary. For this atoning sacrifice to take place. And when we minimize that, when we downplay the, the, the scriptural arguments for it, we minimize the problem Jesus' death solves. If, if the story of Jesus doesn't need to be that bad and that bloody, then the reason he came doesn't either. So these two things go hand in hand. The less we think of sin, and the effects of sin, the less we need to think about the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus. The smaller a problem sin becomes, the less we need Him to endure in order to overcome it. These two things go hand in hand. The greater you think of sin, the more you see of the effects of sin and the power of sin to separate you from the God who made you, the more you need Christ to have done all that he did in order to bridge that gap. So that's what happens when we minimize Christ's death. But what happens when we add more to it? What happens when in addition to the death of Christ, there are these other necessities, these other sacrifices, this extra obedience that we tell ourselves or other people are necessary for us to be justified in the eyes of God? Well, when we do this, when we tack things onto the cross, we minimize the priesthood of Christ. If you have a pantheon of extra mediators, if you have all of these extra hoops that that good people need to jump through, what you're saying is the priesthood of Christ isn't enough. You take away from the glory of Christ when you hand it over to someone else, as if we needed more. In Christ alone so at the end of our text, we get a kind of summary of what's been going on here. like we've been talking about sacrifice and the need for sacrifice as it relates to sin, but, but that's not all that Jesus is doing here. like there is actually something positive, something forward-looking in view in the death of Christ. I already said that the death of Christ should be seen in two contexts. We've got the atoning sacrifice, but we also have this covenant inauguration. So the question to ask yourself is, where does that covenant end up? If the death of Christ inaugurates or gives its initial power to the new covenant, where does the new covenant end up? That's the question. Where does it lead to? Where is its end point? So let's take a look at that, that very... Last sentence. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, we started and I asked you to to try to remember what it was like to eagerly wait for your parents' return. The reason was I wanted you to have kind of a, a sense of the emotion, right? what it is to wait eagerly. Like we wait on things all the time, not nearly as much as people used to wait. We're not nearly as patient as people used to be. Right? We, we wait for five minutes tops, and then we move on. But uh, but still we wait. But not all of our waiting is eager. Right, A lot of our waiting is indifferent. I don't know about you, but I find myself oftentimes... Trapped, waiting for things that, frankly, I don't care how it goes one way or the other. We're stuck at, at the tire store waiting for them to put new tires on. And I have no hope in that. I know that these tires won't be better than the last ones. That they, too, will blow out and, and leave me stranded somewhere, as all the others have, because I don't change them when I should. I know that there's really nothing in this that's going to deliver me. So I wait, and I wait... Not eager, I I just wait impatiently, ready to move on to the next thing. This isn't that kind of waiting. The kind of waiting that that has all that longing tied up and all that desire for the restoration of order and justice, all that desire to be fed again, to feast once again and be full, all of that is is a, a waiting that is filled with eagerness. A waiting that is filled with desire. A waiting that is filled with hope knowing that what will happen when the wait is over is the thing that we've been waiting for, it will be good, it will be satisfying. If you feel the weight of your sin, the weight, the heaviness, not the weight, W-A-I-T, if you feel the weight, the heaviness of your sin, and you long to draw close once more to the God who made you, then Jesus is the High Priest that you've been waiting for. Because of His sacrifice, because of His obedience, because of His mediation, because of all of the things that the author of Hebrews has told us, if you feel it bearing down on you, if you're conscious of the distance, if you feel the absence of Christ in the world, of God in your life, if you look within, where Augustine told us earlier, He is. And you say, I'm not sure He is. I feel emptiness. Do you feel that weight bearing down? Then Jesus is the high priest that you've been waiting for eagerly with hope. He is the high priest who can deliver. The old high priests, you picture this scene. When they entered into the holiest of holies on the Day of Atonement to make that sacrifice, last week we talked about what that might look like on the inside, what it might look like for a priest entering into the temple, into the presence of God. But imagine what it was like on the outside. If you were not a priest, if you were not allowed to enter into those most holy places, you had to gather outside. You had to gather in the outer courts, beyond the tabernacle, and be an onlooker. So what did you do while the sacrifice was made? You waited. You waited. And you could not see what was happening. Because the priest had entered into the temple, he was no longer visible to you. He was invisible to your eyes. You'd seen him go. And now you waited for his return. You waited for him to reappear, to come back again. Because until he did, you had no idea what had happened. So everybody waited. And they waited eagerly. They didn't wait the way you wait to have your tires replaced. They waited the way you wait to confirm that your sins have been atoned for for the year. So they waited eagerly, longing for the moment when they would glimpse him coming out through the door and know that the atonement had been made, the sacrifice had been made. As those people eagerly waited the reappearance of a high priest whose only power was to cleanse the physical places, whose only power was to roll back their sin for another year. They waited with eagerness. We wait on a high priest who has entered into the most holy place in heaven to make atonement for our sins. And when we see him again, it will mean not just that our sins were atoned for, but that the whole of our salvation is accomplished, that the whole of our inheritance is ready to be delivered into our hands. And so we wait eagerly. We don't look back to the cross and say, well, Jesus came, He atoned for our sins, and then He left. And that's the end of the story. Instead, we look forward to the day that He will come again not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The first time He came, He accomplished the work of redemption. All the sin that will ever be forgiven, all the sin that will ever be atoned for, was atoned for on the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. No other work of atonement will ever be done. And prior to that, no real work of atonement was ever done. All that was ever done were these sort of temporary stopgap things that looked forward to that sacrifice, that need never be made again. All of your sin that will ever be forgiven, was atoned for long before you were ever born. When he comes again, he comes to bring the completion, the redemption that was accomplished for you, that was applied by the Holy Spirit in the the history of your life, to bring all of that to completion. That's what he comes to do, to save those who eagerly wait for him. We've talked about Jesus as a priest, as a mediator. We've talked about how He is the sacrifice made for us, and also the priest who argues on our behalf, who is in the presence of God making intercession for us. And now, as you picture Him, the thing that I ask you to do is, is remember the feeling. Not the feeling of absence, but the feeling of longing. The, the eager waiting. Because as He is there making intercession for us, what should we feel? Should we feel desperation? Should we feel abandoned? As He sits on the right hand of God, pleading on our behalf, should we feel neglected? No. We should see the necessity of His work of mediation. He has to be where He is as he does this priestly work. He will come again and deliver on all that he has promised. So rather than feeling his absence and lamenting how long it's taking him to get the business done, we should contemplate our longing for him. We should root for him. We should direct our affection towards this work of mediation as Jesus pleads on behalf of us, on behalf of all who are in Christ, as He takes the work of atonement and it is applied to the lives of people. Our hope should be directed towards that work. We say, Come, Lord Jesus. But as we think of Him as our High Priest, we ought to think too, Work, Lord Jesus. Intercede. Lord Jesus. Sanctify Lord Jesus. Be our high priest. Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.